Hello and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez, and we have the great, excite, exciting honor to be sitting here today with director Arthur Hiller, uh, a multiple award winner and uh, a, an incredible talent, and also somebody who's been instrumental in the overall sort of film culture of Los Angeles in terms of being involved with both the Academy of Motion Pictures and the Directors Guild of America. So thank you so very much, Mr. Hiller, for being with us here today. I hope you'll feel the same after we finish this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we should definitely start talking a little bit about how you you came down from Canada, you said, when in, in, right. in the mid, mid to early 50s? I came here in 1955. I was brought down by Matinee Theater, which was a live show, a drama every day five days a week. Was that on television? That was on television. One hour live drama. What was that like, shooting that at that time? It's live and it was scripted, I understand. Oh yes, there were dramas. There were regular dramas. That's what I had been doing in Canada. Actually, if I can back up, uh, I had always loved the theater. My parents started a Yiddish theater in Edmonton, Alberta when I was like seven years old. And uh, th they were not professional or anything, but they were very into culture. They loved music and, and they loved theater. And, you know, everything that came to me culturally came to me through them. And so when they started the theater, they had me helping the man who was building the sets and painting the sets. And then by the time I was 11, I was acting with the long beard and all. It was just once a year, just for the community, the Jewish community to be in touch with their heritage. And I loved theater. And then when I went to high school, there was a drama teacher who was just wonderful, just you know, terrific teacher. And she also, I realized after that the plays that she had us working on all had social meanings, contents, just without pushing us. She was <laughs> immersing us in, in good moral values too. So it was very fortunate for me. I wish I had absorbed, <laughs> how shall I say, all my parents' moral values and, uh, and Eva Howard's. Actually, when I finished high school, there was a teacher, a, a, a professor of drama from Ohio State, who came up to the University of Alberta, where I was living, that was in Edmonton, and he did a six-week course in the summer at the University of Alberta, as I say, teaching teachers how to teach drama. And he taught them by putting on a play, they had to paint the sets, you know, build them, paint them, they had to act in it, they had to get the props, the costumes, decorate, you know, they had to, that's how he taught them by each thing. And he was short two actors. So he went to the high school drama teacher and he said, who are the best kid actors? And I ended up playing Donald, the black servant, and you can't take it with you. But from that, I was offered a drama scholarship to Ohio State. Oh, wow. 
and I turned it down because I thought, that's what you do on the weekends. I mean, you, <laughs> don't, you don't earn your living in theater. Was that, <laughs> well, did your parents the, do Yiddish theater? Was that something they did as a, not as a profession? No, not a profession at all. Mm -hmm. Neither one was. Mm -hmm. What was their close profession? To be, close to being professional. What uh, did your parents do? My father was had uh, like a menswear shop, but he loved, he had musical instruments and things like that because that's, he, he really wanted to be a doctor. That's what brought him in 1904. He came over from Poland because they wouldn't let him into the university there. But because his father and sister followed, he had to get to work. And, but to the day he died, there was a drawer of first aid stuff at home, and he still sort of helped, <laughs> you know, the neighbors with little things. And, but it was just a love of culture and wanting the community to be in touch with their culture. So after you turned down that scholarship, did you uh, think you were going to do something else with well, with your life? I left. I went. I was in the Canadian Royal Canadian Air Force. I went over overseas, you know, in a bombing squad, <laughs> flying over Germany, dropping our bombs and stuff. And when we came back, I went to the University of Toronto. And obviously was involved, not just studying, but in the drama and, and the Vic Follies, which was a sort of making fun of the teachers and the students. Once a year we did a, a hopefully fun show. <laughs> And uh, when I finished my master's in psychology, I thought, it's the communications part I like, the, the social part. Why am I not doing what I've always loved to do? And I made the first sort of, what shall I say, big move <laughs> that I'd ever made. I walked into the headquarters of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation which was the radio network. And it was like, more like NPR, because there were no commercials. The government paid for it, but the government didn't interfere. And it was designed, really, to bring programming for the whole country. And there was. There was opera, there was ballet, there was modern music, there were discussion groups, there were dramas. There, you know, it was all talks and things. And uh, I walked up to the information desk and I said, excuse me, who, who do I see about a job? And she said, what kind of a job? And I said, well, I, and I thought, oh, I, <laughs> well, I'd always thought maybe I'd be an actor or an announcer because I'd worked summertime in Edmonton as an announcer or operator just to earn the money to go to university. And uh, I, uh, I, I want to be a director. Mm. And to this day, I don't know where that came from. I hadn't directed particularly or ever thought about it. And she said, do you speak to Mr. Doyle, who's the manager of the network? So I phoned Doyle. And his secretary said, the name is Boyle, not Doyle. <laughs> and what do you want to see him about? And I told her, and she said, you can't see him. But you can see his associate, Mr. Palmer. So 
I made an appointment with Palmer, and I said to him, I want to be a director. I don't know whether you started a transmitter on the prairies and work your way up, but but I that I would like to be in Toronto because I still had a couple of months sort of to finish off my master's. And he said, what are you studying? And I said, psychology. And he said, oh, just a minute. And he went away, came back, and took me to the supervisor of public affairs broadcasting. And we had a nice hour and a half conversation. You know, later I realized he was pumping me. What do I read? What do I think about this civic problem or this social issue? <laughs> All that. And he said, why don't you apply for a job I have available? Uh, and it's here in Toronto. And I joined, I think, 64 other people. And a couple of weeks later, he hired me. He, so he's the one who took me off the street. And, and what was the title of that job? I was, uh, it's, it's called producer-director, sort of, uh, of talk shows. But what was the first show I did, it was called Pro or Con, oh. and you picked a topic, and then you found somebody on each side of the, uh, of that particular issue, and that was the, the program. Hmm. And what was the first one I picked? Should Canada have a national theater? Hmm. So obviously my, <laughs> my love of theater was still there. And, uh, and I did a lot of talk shows, and then because of my love of drama, I started to do, I guess what you'd call, radio drama documentaries. It'd be a drama, but it would be about a social issue or civic problem, and it just kept going from there. It's, but that's something I tell young people who are starting out. You need luck. And, like, what if the woman at the desk had sent me to the personnel office instead of to phone Doyle? <laughs> I mean, I might still be waiting my turn. But don't you need to put yourself in a place where yes. that luck will shine on you? Exactly. But the other part was, what if I had, hadn't said to Palmer that I was completing a master's and it was because he found out it was psychology that made him think of Neil Morrison, who was the, you know, the man who hired me. Or what but if they said, what do you want to do? And you said, I, well, uh, I don't know, I'll be the janitor. No. <laughs> but yeah. No, I think you have to say what you want. Mm -hmm. But I say to, to students all the time, if I'm doing workshops or something, you know, at universities or what have you, film schools, uh, that you need luck. And that you have to, you have to hang in there, and you have to keep knocking on doors, knocking on doors, and one day one will open. But when it does, you better be good. You better know what you're doing because it's not going to open again. Mm. And I think that's very important. That, well, something else I say, if I'm speaking to a class of young filmmakers or possible young filmmakers, I say, how many of you want to be in the film industry? You know, and all the hands go up. And I say, is that what you want to do most in all the world? And the hands go up again, and I say, that's not enough.
It better be the only thing you want to do. If you don't have the passion for it, it's not worth the aggravation and the difficulties and the rejections that you're going to have. And I think that's so important that if you don't have that passion, or like when young people come and say to me, I want to be a director, I say, have you ever made a film? And if they say no, it drops me a little. I don't not speak to them, but it drops me a little. I think if they don't love it enough to have written a 10-minute little film and gotten the neighbors, you know, maybe they wash dishes for three weekends to be able to rent a camera and do a little 10-minute something with the neighbors, then there isn't that there isn't that passion there or did a little play you know that sort of thing so it's a combination of uh, of well, things we noticed that um, we we watched the americanization of emily which is so brilliant and uh, we were re-watching it with the director's commentary turned on and one of the things that you said that struck me was that you asked the producer if you could direct that movie and he said absolutely not you're not ready and then you asked him again and he said no 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 and he went through seven other directors but you were continually there <laughs> putting yourself forward so it wasn't like you just you know made but a an that's attempt the only, but that's the only film i really kept after the producer because I think if they don't want me, that's up to them. But see, that was your first big, big one, wasn't it? Well, it was, but I had just completed one for that producer. And, uh, and in, while I was in post-production, I saw the script that Patty Chayefsky had written. They had it there, and I just, I fell in love with it. I just thought it... You know, that, well, actually, what you saw on the screen was a first draft. If we changed six lines, it was a lot. I would say Patty Chavsky was the only genius I ever worked with. Just, he defied you to make, not make a good movie. You know, he had just always so many wonderful things. He got his Oscar. In fact, he got two Oscars, one for Hospital and one for Network. And because I did hospital, it, I can make this comment that I, I think that Americanization of Emily was a better script in terms of script terms. Like, mm. the hospital I worked with him on, when I say worked with him, he did work, but, you know, but I had discussions and that. It's funny, it's funny in terms of also interest and your feelings about projects. I would say for 10, 12 years after Hospital had come out, Patty and I still periodically would be sitting in the Carnegie Deli in New York rewriting the ending of Hospital. Mm. <laughs> we always thought it was good, but we thought it should have been better. And we were still, what if we'd had him do this? Or what if we'd had him say this? You mean in terms of, of, of maybe going with with Diana Rigger or, or not that drastic a difference? We just, no, not drastic. We really just didn't hit on something 
that we felt would complete it more. We, I think we didn't feel we said strongly enough, you got to hang in there. It's not enough to see a problem, and it's not enough to think about it. You've got to get in there and do something. You have to do it. And I think we said it, but we felt we could have said it stronger. Well, I, it really did stick out to me that you said, um, or or you and Patty said, were saying, yeah, it looks very square and very sort of bourgeois to take personal responsibility, but without personal responsibility and these social structures, um, you will have nothing to run around and protest and revolt against because it, yeah. there won't be anything there. Yes. No, I think that's... We felt we said it. We just felt we should have said it a little, a little better. Yeah. A lot of writers these days that I have talked to um, are kind of left out of the uh, equation when it comes to the actual making of the film, and sometimes they lose control over their script and this and that. Um, at that time period when you were working with Patty Chayefsky, was uh, the relationship between director and the writer a little bit more um, uh, involved in the filmmaking process? That's entirely up to the people, shall we say. Uh, I don't think it's that different now than it was then. Uh, I happen to be happy. I want the writer to be there because there are things happen. You know, it's a whole creative process with so many people involved. Things change, or the weather changes, or you're suddenly faced with a problem and you have to change things. If the writer is there, at least the writer knows why you're making changes or what they could come up with or help with. But basically, it gets dull for the writer because they know that script and they would rather be writing another one than sitting there because they're just seeing it over and over. So rarely do they really want to be there but Patty was there because he was producing and actually on hospital people would ask me on both times I worked with him how do you work with him you know and he's so abrasive and he's so determined on his ideas and this and that and I said because when a genius speaks I listen because as I said he was the only genius I ever worked with. And only one time did we have a disagreement. It was on hospital, and I was, we were filming in a hospital at a particular, on a scene I've forgotten, and I suddenly had an idea about changing the characters a little in their direction in that scene, and changing just a couple of lines and Patty was there because I say he was producing and I went over and I said Patty you know I've had thoughts and and uh, I talked to him about it and he stood there with his head down his chin on or his hand under his chin and his fist listening and listening and when I finished he looked up and he said Arthur that's wonderful mm. but you can't do it <laughs> I said, what do you mean it's wonderful and I can't do it? He said, because if we did it, I would have to go back to the beginning and redo to lead to that. 
And I pointed out to him why you wouldn't have to do that. And that's the only time we got into sort of verbal <laughs> at each other and for about 10 minutes. And then finally he went into his office, slammed the door, and he didn't come out for four hours. And it's the only time when he felt strongly that I went ahead and did what I felt. I just felt <clears throat> when he thinks about it, he's going to see it. I just felt so sure, and I did it. Next morning, I'm setting up a scene in another part of the hospital, and I see Patty arrives, and he comes through a door, and he's coming towards the set and coming towards me with a very glum look on his face and not the happiest and coming at me and I thought oh I'm in trouble <laughs> and he just he walked right behind me and as he passed he said you were right and just kept going <laughs> I knew he was his first instinct was to protect his baby and I knew that when he thought about it he would see that he didn't have to go back and write it all and and he saw it. So, what was it about Patty Chayefsky that um, made him such a such an incredible writer? Do you think? He just. It's hard to explain. One you of the things I noticed is that he. I. I mean, just from what I've observed and from my viewpoint, he in those two scripts, he seemed to uh, take risks in doing something that might not be so popular. Like Americanization of Emily, the um, the story, uh, you know, there's a chance that someone might say, "Hey, this is sort of anti-American." Not a chance. It happened over and over. That's why a lot of people wouldn't do it. They said it was anti-American, or they felt unhappy. It was anti-war, and you know, you have to. And I said, "Read it. It says, when somebody comes at you, your home." You have to protect it. Of course you have to go to war. And I say it wasn't anti-war. It was anti the glorification of war. Mm -hmm. Don't make war seem so wonderful by creating incidents. It's so well stated in the film, too. It James is. Garner's character, uh, especially when he's talking to... Uh, the the to mother, mother. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah that I, scene, I was, that scene is amazing that's the only thing that made me nervous i thought we've really said it here <laughs> that's know? like a whole short film in and of yeah. itself that yeah. scene that woman i know you say in the comments that, that you had to sort of work with her but wow. she was brilliant in that she was scene. terrific mm -hmm. yeah i was crying at the end of that scene she was yeah, just I think with Patty Chayefsky, he can take on these kind of issues and really uh, make it work. Uh, also, the the George C. Scott character, I felt like in Hospital, you know, he has this whole speech where he's he's uh, <laughs> saying how you know uh, the impotent men should gather, you know, and he's <laughs> impotent, and he's proud of it, and all this stuff. And then there's a scene following that that is all is a rape. Um, well, it wasn't really rape. Yeah, not she, really, but uh, no, no, yeah, it was, she was. It was not, love. Yeah. It was love from both. But still, it's challenging subject matter. Oh, yeah. No, but it challenged me in many ways too. Obviously, to keep the characters going, but in the particular scene you're speaking about, he had a high. You know how many ranges? Look how different each because you start with a man oh. who is about to suicide, who's taking his own life, 
and now she comes in and even stops him. But still, from the time he knocked that bottle up, got up, and I thought, what can I do? I said, I can't ask this man to build those emotions, you know, 15 times. And so I devised a shot that did a lot of the scene in one shot. And it took, Victor Kemper, our cinematographer, took four hours to light it because it was so complicated. But I thought, I just have to do it to get that performance from him in case it doesn't work on time one or something. And I cited to people that, that that's what makes an unbelievable actor. Because at one point, you know, he's building, he's done impotence and all, and he goes to her and he talks and he talks about his kids, you know, and it keeps building. And then I had him going over and holding onto the door and looking out into the outer office with the camera like two-thirds behind him. And at one point, he was supposed to say, we have built the biggest medical establishment and still, I've forgotten, something like, you know, our kids are out on the streets. And, and when he got to it and he was supposed to say, we have built the biggest medical establishment, we got to it, he said, we have established the biggest medical, and he stopped. And I knew why he was stopping, because he'd said established. How could he say establishment? <laughs> and out of him came entity, and he <laughs> went on. And I thought, I mean, I couldn't believe that in that emotional scene, he could drop a line, you know, a word, and be saying to himself, I just said established, I can't say <laughs> establishment. What can I say? And find a word and stay in character. Yeah. But we as people I mean, do stopped, that too. You know? Well, when he did it, though, at the end of the take, I said, cut and print. And he came over and said, oh, Arthur, I'm sorry. And I said, no, it was wonderful. It came from the gut. You know? And he said, let me do it again. And we did a second take, and he was right on. The first take is in the film. Mm. That just added to it. Yeah. But I wouldn't, if he had stopped and st when he said... Yeah, a lot of actors would just go, oh, can we do this again? Yeah, you know. would, but I would have understood it. I yeah. wouldn't have been mad. I, you know, we would have done it again. But to be able to do that... Mm -hmm. But he was... If I could have done the picture in two days, he could have done it in two days. I mean, just, I didn't rehearse with them. You didn't? Because I wanted the feeling that you, the audience, were peeking around the corner all the time. You had to make it sort of semi-real, you know, that feel. It, it did feel that way. It almost sort of established that style that became so prevalent. Yeah, it did. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about working in that kind of a situation where you've got all these, you, I mean, there were probably 50 different characters in that. Uh, and uh, all this, uh, all these extras and people running around, it, what was it like working in that kind of a situation? Well, it wasn't easy because, you know, people are not used to that sort of, what should I say, documentary feel I wanted. It was what I called messy good. 
and try and get an operator to be messy good. You know, they're trained to perfection. And even though I said I want messy good, they, they would have trouble. But even if they didn't have trouble, their instincts are to be good, you know, so they have to fight that. Or they think, if I mess up, what are my friends who are operators going to say? <laughs> you know, and so I had to create shots that just couldn't be done without being a little messy. Or there were a lot of handheld shots. I noticed that some of your shots, like one shot in particular, I remember there was a uh, an an in basket um, that was like between us and one of the characters who was talking. And I was wondering about those kind of shots. That obviously you chose that shot so it would look, I guess, more realistic, or as if yeah. we were like just standing there watching the. Events. Or I had the emergency room nurse drop a pencil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was done on purpose yeah. because I wanted, you know, I was following them or leading them, I guess leading them, and now they were going to turn to go in a door, and I still wanted to be with them, but the, it wouldn't make sense. So I got her to stop, you know, drop the pencil, which let me then get the can I've forgotten exactly, <laughs> but let me continue with the visual that I wanted. Or I had her drop a pencil again in the upper in the emergency room where the young doctor she finds the young doctor dead because I wanted her to pick up you know to have to pick up the pencil as she went to him so that we could be on that and we could come up with the pencil onto the patient rather than be with her. It just so you do little things, physical things like that, or what was also tough for the cinematographer. I wanted to do a shot that everybody said I was out of my mind. We'd never get it because it was like five and a half pages long, and everybody and there was no such thing as a steady cam in those days, and. Well, I'll tell you the way I described it to George. I said, uh, I had laid it out, you know, and they were working on it. I said, George, you get off the elevator, because that was right at the beginning where we had seen him. Obviously, he'd been drinking all night and was sort of passed out watching TV and then gets a phone call from the hospital that one of the doctors was found dead in a patient's bed. And he's you know, and obviously thinking, what the heck is that? You know, what the hell's going on? And so I said, when you get off the elevator, you go over to the desk and ask the nurse, you know, where are you supposed And she'll tell you to, you have to go to room 810. And as you go around the nurse's station, you, uh, you'll see two women are upset. You can talk to them if you want, or, you know, just, and then I said, head down till the young doctor comes. When the young doctor reaches you and tells you what's been going on, you, you'll talk to him till the assistant administrator sticks his head out the door and says, come in, come on. And then you go in to the room. The nurse that's coming out is the one who phoned you and she's upset and you can commiserate her. Then go and continue the talk about what the hell's going on till the administrator says, we better go out because the guy in the other bed might hear what we're saying. 
So out he comes again. I said, and as you start down the hall, I will bring a group of interns with the doctor out of the next room, which will stop you as there, because there'll be a group of them. So you'll be against the wall with the head nurse, and that's where you get emotional and ask, you know, finally, where do you train your nurse? Is it Dachau? You know, mm -hmm. and that. And then I said, when we get to the end, I want you to switch these last lines, three lines this way, so that you'll be able to walk away to the, oh no, I said at this point in the dialogue, switch places with her so we get some change. Then we get to the end, it's these three lines and head down. Now, that's not a very clear direction, but I didn't want to be clear because mm -hmm. I wanted him confused. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it took us, I'm blanking now, I think like 17 takes till we got it. Uh -huh. Not one because of him, <laughs> just a lot of physical yeah. problems more than anything else. And he was with it. He did all, everything I asked was there. And by noon, we had done two days' work. We'd done five and a half pages. So but you have to have an actor who can cope with that. You need a crew who can too. You know, it really takes doing. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, everybody got in there and did it. So do you generally shoot, do you think uh, um, an average movie would shoot about two and a half to three pages a day? That's considered normal. Mm -hmm. And what's what's an average or what uh, in your experience has been an average sh period of time to shoot a feature film? I don't know, just because each one just feels different. Uh, I've shot one in 23 days and I shot one in about 100 days. So I've done the range, but most of them have been 40, 50 days. How do you plan out your shots? Like that you just described this very intricate one. Um, how do you plan before you get onto the set? Well, I'm very insecure, which is not unusual. <laughs> for No, I have a phrase actually that I use. I say, if I said that every creative person I know is insecure, I'd be doing a disservice to very few people. It is, you cannot be creative and be secure. It's just, you know, if you have to build a table or something, you build it, it's there, there's your table. But you write music or you paint something or you're acting, you finish, I think, yeah, I did. Well, did I do good? Is that, I, it, I think it was, and you're not sure. You need people to tell you. And that's why a director is very busy giving the actors the security they need or the, to let them know, give them the pat on the back that they need or the slap on the wrist that they need. You know, you have to be like daddy or mommy if you're <laughs> female. You know, you have to be the, uh, and it's hard because you're insecure too. <laughs> anyway, but that's, you led me into something, now I've forgotten. Oh, I like what you said, that's, that's, uh, how do you plan for oh, the day when so you're on the set? I'm so nervous that I plan considerably. I, I want to be able to answer any question anybody asks me two weeks before we start filming. So I know exactly what I'm thinking, what my plan is. Also, 
it gives me a security on the set when somebody's got an idea or they're thinking that I don't panic because I, I know I have something to fall back on. I've got something in my head so I can listen more to ideas and if somebody's idea is good I can make the changes. Now different people work differently. There are directors who don't do any staging till they get on the on the set or they work the characters a little. There's no right or wrong way. It's the same with the actors. You know, some are themselves and take on the characteristics of the character. Some become that character. They become that person to such an extent that even all day between scenes they're still that person. There's no right way or wrong way. It works. Do you rehearse like you were saying you didn't rehearse the actors in that hospital? Um, are there other situations where you do a lot of rehearsal? Yes. I rehearsed, for instance, I rehearsed 10 days on Love Story. Mm -hmm. Part of it, it was, I would go 10 to 4 each day and I wouldn't let anybody in till 4 o'clock. Just Ryan O'Neill, Ali McGraw, and me. 4 o'clock, makeup or hair or whatever could come in. Because part of it was to get character, but most of it was to get them to like each other. Because I thought, if they don't like each other a lot, I won't have a movie. Mm. You know, it just needs that. It was not, it was the kind of thing where you need the relationship. And so, you know, you create fun situations, and we had a good time, but it, they got to like each other, and, and they worked at it, and they were easy. I mean, they, they knew what they were doing and that, so. Or when I did Man in the Glass Booth, we had 23 days and $1 million to make the film. And uh, fortunately, I could have most of the actors for rehearsal and did 12 days rehearsal because I knew that when we got on stage, there just wasn't going to be time to have discussions about character. And it was very heavy on character and very intellectual with a lot of it. And uh, reminding me of a funny story that on Sundays, I would arrange with uh, the security at Fox Studios and I would go with Max Shell, with nobody else, just the two of us, and get security, let us in on the stage, and I would work with them. This was after all the rehearsal, but even work with them on what was his most important and difficult stuff coming up that week. And uh, one Sunday we went in, and it was to be uh, in the glass booth that he is in when he's in the court trial. And uh, we go over to the glass booth and it was locked. I thought, oh. So I ran to the phone, I phoned the prop master. He was at the beach. And there were no, <laughs> there were no cell phones yet, <laughs> or very few. So I phoned the assistant prop man. No answer. So then I thought, oh. Craft Service keeps keys in his drawer. 
So I broke into his drawer and the keys weren't there. <laughs> then I remembered that when we were creating the sets, I said to the production designer, Max is going to, Maximilian Schell, who was mm -hmm. playing the lead, said he's going to get very hot in that booth. Put a fan down in the bottom and connect it so that when in between shots we can turn it on and a little air will will circulate. And I'd also said make the top removable and if I'm not seeing that section we'll take off the section and again it'll give Max more air. So I climbed up on a chair and I got the top off. Mm -hmm. Now Max climbs up on the chair and he's got to climb over <laughs> and drop on the bench that he sits on in there. And I'm pushing him, and he's, but he finally gets over, and he gets in there, and we start working, and it was hot. His jacket came f flying out. <laughs> then his shirt came out. <laughs> and after about three hours, we, that, that's enough. And then we started to laugh as we both remembered what we'd forgotten. He's got to get out of the booth. And now there he is on the on the bench in the booth trying to climb up and over. I'm on the chair on the outside trying to pull him. <laughs> and we're laughing at our stupidity. <laughs> Finally got him out, but we still laugh at it. <laughs> you know, the things you don't... Uh, you think you've thought of everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, um, a lot of actors talk about typecasting. And uh, w some directors get typecast as well. You, however, um, have such an eclectic collection of films, comedies and dramas, and uh, you know, uh, I wonder how did you create a life for yourself where you could do so many different types of movies? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, it just... And is there a difference well, between, it, you know... I guess like it makes a difference in a certain sense. For instance, when I was working in television, I was doing straight dramas, which is what I always wanted to do, very straight. Then uh, Leonard Stern was doing a, a pilot for a series called I'm Dickens, He's Fenster, which was a comedy series. And he was saying to his friends, I, I don't want a comedy director, he said, I want a good director with a comedy sense. And a friend of his was a script girl, and she said, we had a director on the bus stop series. I had done a couple of episodes. She said, we had a director who did a couple of episodes with us, I think, who fits your comment. And he met me, and he liked me. And I did the pilot for him, and it sold. Then I did the Adams Family pilot, and it sold. And suddenly I was a comedy director, <laughs> and <laughs> I was getting comedies then. <laughs> so you just never know, you know where it's going to come from. And that's how I got also to Americanization of Emily, because the picture I did ahead was a romantic comedy, also with James Garner, James Garner and Lee Remick. And Marty Ranshoff, the producer, said to John Kelly, his associate, 
at that time, and then John went on to become head of a couple of studios, but Marty said to him, I don't want a comedy director. He said, I want one, I want one of the TV directors. I want a, a good TV director, and we'll get him going, whatever. So John Calley went to Eddie Rissian. He was head of, I think, programming at ABC at that time and was a friend of John's, and John said, who are the best three directors? And Eddie would only name me. So they met me, and they liked me, and I did Wheeler Dealers for them, and that's what led to Americanization of Emily. So you just never know where it's going to come from. So I wanted to ask you, because I think a lot of times people see television as a completely distinct form than feature films. And I know you've had the ability to move back and forth pretty fluidly through those forms. What do you see as the distinctions and the similarities between them? What the distinction is not a distinction. The main thing, the thing, the thing you have to remember when you're directing is something that sounds very simple, but you're telling a story. And that doesn't matter whether you're in television or whether you're in film. You're still telling a story. And you have to get the story told in a way, how should I say, not just for the audience to to see it, you know, with their eyes, but in a sense, to see it with their, with their gut, to feel it, you see, and that's what, that's what you have to do, and and you have to remember that it's a team that you need everybody. Everybody has something to contribute, and it's not one person doing something. I mean. People say to me, have you ever written a screenplay? And I say, no, I'm not a writer. And they say, you could write one. I say, I'm not a writer. And they say, you've done enough movies, you could write a screenplay. I say, yes, I'm reasonably intelligent. I could sit down and write a screenplay. It would have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But you wouldn't want to see the movie. So that's what the writer puts in. There's something that a writer f can do to write a screenplay, to come up with a concept and to write it. I said, I hope when I'm directing, I'm doing something the writer can't do. I hope when the actors are acting, they're doing something I can't do. I hope each person can do there. It's, you get contributions. Uh, you know, it just, it's wonderful to see actors working off each other or have the prop master come to you and say, Arthur, what if I had a this and this, or got you a this? And you think, oh, that's good. You know, people say to me, you, you listen to everybody on this set. I, I say, no, I'm listening with half an ear, and if I hear one thing in 600 that gives me an idea or is good, it's been worth it. Because yeah, you never know where you'll get a different idea. That's also why I love 
filming in New York so much. People, you know, I filmed more there than I filmed here. And uh, in fact, they gave me, they have a crystal apple, which is given to New Yorkers who keep films in New York. And Mayor Koch gave me one because he said, you've brought more films here <laughs> than people keep here. <laughs> so, but it's, and people say, why do you work there? You know, and it's, there's so many problems. You know, if you're in Midtown, the traffic is just unbelievable and people pushing and shouting at you and doing all kinds of things. And, and it's true. And I say, that's what I love about it. It keeps you thinking. You have to, there are little problems, you have to figure out ways. You won't find yourself, what should I say, doing it the same way over and over because it makes you think or, or you see somebody do something and you think, oh, I could put that in the film and make it look good. Or, so you, need, you just need all those things. Okay, so. I think we're at the point of the show where we um, we do this thing called Film Bites. Oh. And I'm springing this on Arthur because I didn't tell him about it before. But essentially, it's just like a little bit of uh, wisdom for people out there that they might not know. that are If they're making their first film or uh, they're making a short film or they've never worked with actors before or something like that. Um, a little bit of wisdom so that they can um, make that next step. In a sense, you have to you have to hone your craft. If you're an actor, you should be working in little theaters or repertory or something to learn, get your acting, to learn how you work with other actors or everything like that. Or go work in a in a film. Let's say that a film school person is doing for their degree or you you have to do things like that or even working as an extra to see what's going on and to get a to get a feel of it uh, if you're a director I say give thought to a 10-minute movie even just make it for yourself don't think about it as going out to the audience or something but work on it work with your friends but remember you're directing them, remember they're acting, let them work with each other to get their, to get feelings and steer them. Because a lot of directing is steering, because the actors come pretty well knowing their character. Although I, for instance, I prepare a background in my head for each person, for each character just in case there, why would I do this or what's this? I have, I say, think of yourself as this person and this problem, you know, try and relate it. But most of them have done that. They have prepared, the actors have prepared a sort of where did they come from? Who are they? What have they done? Some of the actors will, as I say, become that person and so they will then feel what's going on. Some will do it all intellectually. Laurence Olivier was very much up in his head. He would create the character, 
and then work at it. But there are lots of people who work, as we say, on the studio system where you become that person. And I say when you become that person, be careful not to go too far. Don't become that person and nobody else matters. Remember that you're working with other people. Do you have that experience sometimes where you come to the set and you've got the actor there and the actor is doing something completely different than what you thought of as the character? Sure. You get times when the actor comes and is doing something different and yet it's giving you what you want and you, you go with it because if it's giving them a, a full feeling, so to speak, and it's giving you what you want, you're telling your story. It's what you have to watch. I'll do it in simple terms. Sometimes actors will come up with something wonderfully funny. And I'll say, you know, it's funny, but you can't do it. Because it doesn't fit in the story. Mm. Yes, it's funny, but it... And so that's what you have to watch. But they will come up with... Well, for instance, if you work... Let's say that I did a film called Poppy, in which Alan Arkin was a Puerto Rican father of two little kids, and he was a single father. I, f I forgot what happened to the mother. I think she passed away. And it's he wants the kids, they live in a sort of ghetto, which he thinks is all right, but he doesn't want them to develop the ghetto mentality. And he looks after them, looks after them, but he has a plan if they really become too ghettoized, as much as he doesn't want to because he loves his kids, he was going to put them out in the water off Florida to be picked up as Cuban refugees. Because in those days, <laughs> kids were picked up, you know, coming over and were adopted by American families. And he was willing, not happily, but willing to give up his kids so that they would have a better a better living and I shot quite a few days with the kids in the water you know we had to build up to it because he had to prepare them but uh, in the water with a little bit of food and how you know it went on and on and when we were editing I thought it's we should never cut to them we should be with him wondering are they all right are they going to be picked up. Why haven't I heard on the radio that they've been picked up? Did something happen to them? It's much better mm -hmm. dramatically. So sometimes you things, because of what you're seeing now, y you think, why did we even shoot that? Well, at the time it made sense, but as you watch it going or edit, you can change your mind. or. You get different ideas as you're watching something happen, and it's uh, there's just so many. Well, in the in-laws, people often say that they just 
how much they love the film. I, it's funny, I get more oh, comment yeah, on that film. It's really a great one. I mean, I saw it, you know, I guess when I was a kid, but uh, yeah. it really, that just, the, the combination of those two actors and the, the situations that they were in yeah. just made just for a great everything film. Everything came together. Everything really came together. Yeah. yeah. But people talk then also about the dinner scene when they finally all get together and Peter Falk is talking about the tsetse flies and that, you know, and people say, how wonderfully funny he is in it. And I said, that's true. I said, but watch the scene and watch Alan Arkin's reactions, which are sometimes just a look or a slight move of the eyebrow. And it makes, think of the scene without that, which is not to say that Peter wasn't funny. He was, you know, but the fullness of the scene is also how it's affecting the other people. And with just little looks or movements, Alan gave that, and so that you need them working together. How would how were those two actors chosen for those roles? They wanted to work together. That's how the picture came about. They felt they would work well together. And they were right. And they were so right. You're good with, uh, or you've done a lot of um, films where there's good pairings of people. I mean, Camel and I were watching The Lonely Guy the other night, and uh, you know, just Charles Grodin and Steve Martin together. There's their chemistry there. Uh, there's you know, uh, Ali McGraw and uh, Ryan O'Neill, of course, Love Story. Yeah. Um, how does a You're director? Very, very good at casting. Basically. Yeah. Well, the people, the mo couple I hear about the most actually is Gene Wilder and Richard right. Pryor. Yeah. Silver Street. Yeah. Who were the first couple you mentioned? Uh, well, I said, uh, oh. Steve Martin and uh, yeah. Charles Grodin. When, when I would get what I wanted in a scene, if we're in a, each time we're in a different location and it lent itself, I would just say to them, okay, you guys sit over here, think of something, and just play it. You know? And they created scenes. And a couple of them, are, or three or four, are in the film because they created interesting little scenes. Because both are, their minds work, they, as I say, in a, in a way of creating scenes that isn't always true for actors, but I knew those two were... Aren't they, they both are writers, though, as well, yeah. so that may be part of it. Yeah, they do, and you, it's... Yeah, with, with Peter and Alan, you just had to... It's, you just steer them a little. You know, it's not like creating characters for them. They're into the characters. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, th that doesn't say you won't make comments sometimes, but you're not going to spend a lot of time with them. As I say, with, with most of the good actors, you just push buttons. Maybe I'm which I say, underplaying what a director does, but but sometimes you have to be careful not to over-direct them, to, mm -hmm. to give them a freedom, but make sure as long as you're getting what you need for the story in terms of telling the story and giving the emotions and uh, giving it in a, in a right way. Mm -hmm. and so 
I want to ask you a question um, back to sort of the business aspect of this whole career. Um, what uh, what do you feel the state of the business is today as opposed to when you first started working in Hollywood and how much harder is it for a young director to sort of break in to the studio system and start to really get some good good jobs? Well, I think what well, let's say, I don't want to say the old moguls weren't interested in business, because they were. They were just, but they wanted to make lots of money. That's what they were doing. But they, they loved their product. They loved movies. And so they would take chances. As long as they were getting good money on a batch, they would take chances on odds and ends. And that went into the studio system until corporations took over. When the corporations took over, what happens is it becomes, I'm exaggerating a little, but it goes, how did we do this quarter? So you're, you're having to show every quarter what you're doing. And sometimes that's too short a period or they're looking only for the big hits. And that's why when uh, special effects came on, you know, in a good way, and that suddenly that's all that was being done because that was what was making money. Now, then, independents couldn't afford to do that, so they made the little movies. And a lot of them took off, which finally said to the studios, hey, little movies can work too. That's why they all have an independent section or a classic section, which I think is terrific that as long as you're doing a little of everything, then uh, fine and dandy. Yeah. Because there's an audience there that wants the big effects pictures. There's an audience that wants little relationship pictures. There's audience for each each kind of picture. So it's still first quarter, first quarter so to speak, <coughs> but it's come come around to covering the marketplace. You can, you know, when people say to me, oh, there are no good movies, I can't go to the movies anymore. I take out the newspaper and I say, have you seen this movie? I just take the ads. Or have you seen this one? No. I said, well, that you would call that a good movie if you went to see it. You don't bother. You have to, you as the audience also have to pick them. And it, maybe it's not easy. Then try and find one of the critics, as they call them, <laughs> uh, you're sim finding similar tastes and go with the kinds of films that they're recommending. You know. Although I think one of the reasons that it is harder for people to find the movies that they might like is because the costs of P&A, which is prints and ads, which at this point is mostly ads that we're talking about, oftentimes with a small movie is more than the entire movie cost. So it's very hard for an, a, a little movie to compete. And then with the distribution of the big screen theaters being sort of 
monopolized to a big degree by studio product, be it studio or the so-called independent arms of the studios, it just for a true independent is a very, very small yeah, That's hard. Window. They need help. They need help. But I can give you an example even with big movies. When I did Silver Streak, we were talking about Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, which is the first time that they worked together. Uh, on you know everything's also first weekend box office. We did we had an okay box office the first weekend, and uh, critics said yeah it's good. I mean others liked it very much, but it was and it didn't. You know, we felt oh. Second weekend we had a bigger box office. Now how many times does that happen? Third weekend, we had even bigger box office. Today, it would have been gone out of the theaters by then. Well, it may well have. And it, after the third weekend, it uh, went into normal, you know, the way. Uh, but the studio made a lot of good, lot of money on it. Love Story first went, was turned down at every studio. You know, the screenplay came before the book. A lot of people think it's an adaptation of a bestseller, but the screenplay was first. He wrote the book based on the screenplay, and wh while we were filming, he was writing the book. But it was turned down because it was, they thought, too simple. You know. And uh, then there was a meeting in the William Morris Agency in New York who represented Eric Siegel, and they said they couldn't sell his screenplay. They were sorry. They'd been everywhere. And they just couldn't make a deal. And Howard Minsky, who was the head of the drama division and who really liked the project, said, yes, he can make a deal. I'm going to make a deal with him. And he made a deal with Eric. And he gave up his job at the William Morris Agency. And he mothered that movie. He got it to Allie McGraw's agent. Allie had done Goodbye Columbus. It wasn't a big star, but she certainly was known by then. And the agent liked it, got it to Allie. She liked it. And based on that, he came out here and he got two offers. He still got lots of turndowns, but he got two offers and took the one with the studio, which was Paramount. And we went on from there, you know. So, so even even at that point in time, there was a certain degree of packaging that had to go into getting a green light from a studio, and that involved a producer really taking an active position. It, there's no, how should I say, I don't know how to explain, because there's no right and no wrong. Things happen in so many different ways, and you need luck, and you need clever thinking. Uh, you have to figure out ways to to get it to somebody, or once you get somebody, then to get the studio. Or obviously, the easiest thing is to walk in with a completed film, and every step. <laughs> as long as it's good. <laughs> but every step back make, gives you problems. And, yeah. You know, if you walk in with a treatment, your chances aren't as good as you walk in with a cast or, or leads 
you know, each step gives you a better chance, but nothing is guaranteed. You never know. Look at Star Wars. How turned down everywhere, and then finally, I think Alan Ladd at uh, at Fox, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, said, "Okay, we'll take a chance," and boom. So, what is up for you next? What are you working on? What are you thinking about? And what do you want to do? Well, I can't do it. I've not been able to work. I developed macular degeneration, wet macular, that they can't do anything about. And I have no sight in one eye and and very messy sight in the other, so I could, yes, I could stage a scene and I could, you know, get a feel of how it played, but I wouldn't be seeing the actors' faces or little things that they do or I, it wouldn't be fair to the to the picture. So I'm not doing anything which depresses me because... Well, what about, have you thought of writing a book? I've thought of it and I did. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> What's the name of your book? Uh, I've titled it The Luck Road to Hollywood with Detours. <laughs> oh, nice. And is it, has it been it's published already? Just gone to a publisher. Terrific. Well, we look forward to that. All right, thank you, Arthur, again. Okay. And thank you, Justin, for um, doing the sound as usual. Justin Shoemaker, ladies and gentlemen. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Bye.